I've never met nobody like, like you. you. I've had friends and I've had buddies. It's, it's true. true. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to Turning Red and welcome to the Extra Credits Podcast. This is Kelsey. <laughs> and this is Trey. So thanks for listening. If this is your first time listening to the Extra Credits, we're a podcast where we talk about movies and shows that we love. And apparently sing songs. Yes. And we're both teachers and we're married to each other. Um, so we just have these conversations all the time. Why not record them, you know? Uh, so Trey teaches social studies, world history, and government. Mm-hmm. And I teach English and women's studies. So we spend a lot of our day thinking and talking about the themes that show up in movies and shows. And today, we will be reviewing Turning Red, and I'm really excited to talk about this movie. And we'll first talk about non-spoilers, strengths and weaknesses, and we'll warn you when we get to spoilers, strengths and weaknesses ahead. Let's do it. First things first, Pixar, guys. Pixar. It's back. Love Pixar movies. We're so privileged, I feel like, else to get Pixar movies like every year. We get them like twice a year, I feel like. Oh, yeah. Like to get coming-of-age allegories for kids, young adults us old adult everybody okay it's really cool that we get all these things yeah and, just like beautiful quality short stories visually right. and i feel like after soul and luca and now turning red i'm kind of like wow i'm surprised that i'm just now realizing that harry potter wasn't just the most formative experience to my young self but it's also these pixar movies they're so amazing the messages that they're trying to throw out to everybody is so inspirational and it's really cool that we have production companies like pixar and, and disney doing that yeah like we just have bugs life and are, take it for granted. Yeah. Like we don't talk about <laughs> Flick enough. You know, we got to get the love to Or flick. Hopper. It's still haunting me. Okay. So let's talk about the team plot and thesis of Turning Red. Okay, cool. So this movie is directed by Domi Shi, who directed Bao. I don't know if you remember that one, Kels, that short film mm-hmm. with the dumpling from 2018. Yeah, she won an Oscar for it. Yes. It's on Disney+. Plus. Go check that out before you watch this movie if you'd like, or if you've already seen it. It's really cool. This is the first Pixar movie directed by a woman. Uh, Well, that's actually not true. Brave was co-directed by Brenda Chapman, who got fired from that project. Go Google that and take a look at that story. That is tragic for Brenda Chapman. Uh, So I want to shout her out because Brave is an amazing film. But this is the first Pixar movie to be solo directed by a woman being Domi Shi. So that's amazing. It's also led by a whole woman team. The first of its kind. Yeah, it's wild to learn that. I yeah yeah it's really cool yeah and it features an asian lead character and it's set in canada shout out our toronto fans what's good toronto hey toronto (laughs) all right so the plot of turning red is that it's set in the early 2000s and it follows a 13 year old girl named maylin lee voiced by rosalie chang who lives in toronto's chinatown may is an obedient overachiever a straight a student who spends her time helping her parents run a temple built to honor their Chinese ancestors. Not just the guys, Not just the, says May. All of the above. May, after a traumatic experience caused by her mother, played fantastically by Sandra Oh, experiences emotions and transforms. And what critics have noted is that what the transformation does and what it represents is especially tricky because the allegory toes the line between truthfully representing a Chinese family, flaws and all, and also indulging and stereotypes and Kelsey and I were thorough we watched this a few times watched the documentary loved the movie the message was a little unclear but we believe Domi Shi's thesis was that your identity is capital and don't let anyone take that away from you which we felt was like simultaneously healthy but also problematic and we'll get into it yeah we'll get into some of the specifics about where it became unclear and then maybe was a little bit tricky right um so okay let's go ahead and get into non-spoiler strengths trey what do you feel like really worked for this movie so first off the representation of multi-ethnic cultures specifically asian cultures and even more specifically this cantonese speaking chinese family we've never seen anything like that in any kind of animated movie especially out of a pixar film And so we get this coming of age story from the perspective of a Chinese Canadian, 13 year old girl and her family, and this girl being confronted with puberty and generational trauma and an identity crisis of sorts. And it's a very layered film. And I was so happy to see it greenlit because we need more representative stories of different experiences, especially from Disney and Pixar. 
but I was really surprised this movie got greenlit for the different layers of things it's talking about. It feels like an eight layer cake of messaging. Yeah, there's a lot of themes yeah, yeah. that and are tackled here. I would say for the most part, the puberty ones work and the other stuff, you know, when we're talking about what maybe doesn't work that's kind of problematic in this movie is the latter stuff. There's a lot of confusing stuff with generational trauma and even kind of identity stuff. And we'll get more into that. But ultimately, I'm just really happy that Pixar is becoming more equitable and who they're giving a platform to. And the past few Pixar movies have been made by diverse teams from Soul to Disney's Encanto and to even, um, what was the past one? Luca. That was a great film. And so they're doing a great job of giving a microphone to different people across the globe. And the production design and the animation, everything really immerses you in this very interesting world right away from the jump. Like, right, Kels, the title card with Mei Lee. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Like, I loved the cute kid moments of her, like, eating, yeah, that opening title card and, like, posing with it. And just the way that she immediately, like, breaks the fourth wall and talks to you. That's not really a spoiler. It's just, like, a lot of energy in the mm-hmm. first part of the movie, which, the dance funnily moves. enough, yeah, funnily enough, the a lot of reviewers have talked about how the first 30 minutes or opening was a little too much for them. It was too much energy. And I just totally disagree. Like I loved it. (laughs) It was so fun. And it just like jumped off the page or the screen. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Thought that was so cool that they built a world with may in this movie, like right away in the first 30 minutes. And you're like, wow, this is TV show potential. And not only is like the setting, the cinematography and the detail in the film, the background of everything, so cool in Toronto but like even in like May's home with like a cooking scene that they show with her dad and you're like wow this animation's like nothing I've ever seen before and the animation is kind of like nothing you've ever seen before it feels old and new at the same time so that was really dope too and also this movie Kels set in 2000 when is this 2002 2002 I think yeah Yeah, the 2002 nostalgia is amazing like we have four town a band uh, and we also have Tamagotchis that yeah. are clipped on May's backpack. I wish I saw like zebra cakes or oh or some order honey bun. some sort of yeah like <laughs> lunch product, you know, like um so the catchy boy band like shiny magazine covers oh of the gosh. 2000s is there. I think at one point she opens a magazine and light bursts out at her friends. Yeah. Um and Four Towns like a boy band that the logo is inspired after 18s and NSYNC and it's just really like reminiscent of dancing or planning dances at sleepovers with friends and uh just there's a song that you heard at the beginning a little preview that was written by billy eilish sung and her really brother, well by kelsey Phineas. not yeah. well by me <laughs> and it's definitely like stuck in your head boy band material so i thought all of that was done really well and it's funny because that's the first time we've seen like an early 2000s yeah i don't think pixar movies are usually clear on dates which yeah. is interesting i would have thought someone would have like snatched up that nostalgia yeah uh, already that but was a good call. i love to see it i want to stick for a second on the the house parties like the music like the four town like they did a really good job of showing awkward middle school house parties and like her whole and may's girlfriend group and just the awkwardness of everybody, I thought that was awesome. It's like something weirdly nostalgic, also kind of like, I don't know, something creeping on my skin about seeing my awkward middle school <laughs> self cringy. in the movie. Everybody being quiet at this party, singing across from one another. Like I think people watching this at any age group are going to relate to this kind of coming of age feeling in the movie, which is so awesome. I wish we got more of the world of fascinating characters that they gave us in the first 30 minutes. Yes, I think I'll talk even more about that in spoilers, but these were the favorite, my favorite parts of the movie. For sure. Okay, let's talk about some non-spoiler weaknesses really quickly. So like I said, the representation is groundbreaking. And there's allegories about menstruation, which we didn't bring up in this uh, in the strengths, but that's obviously a strength. And having pads in a movie, like that's probably going to do more for representation than we can even imagine for young girl stories. But Pixar struggled, I think, having a consistent through line in their message in this movie. Like, was it puberty generational trauma, an identity crisis, selling your identity, subtle queer nods, but also not fully developed. It just felt like a lot of messages or half worked out messages that ended up not fully working for us, even after watching it twice. And in its defense, I feel like a lot of that is just growing up. Like the mess of growing up is just kind of very volatile. And that's what the messaging felt like in this movie. But it also did feel like a moment for Pixar to make a deeper message And it felt like they were saying to accept yourself, but not in a super nuanced way, which I think they had the platform to do so in the budget. So I was kind of surprised by that. Mm -hmm. And before we 
continue with critiques, I think it's important to note also that only a day into this movie's release, I think the reception will be very divisive or a few days into this movie's release. Now the reception has been divisive. I think it'll continue to be divisive. I'm expecting a Ben Shapiro video at any point ruining any type of potential serious critiques. Like hopefully we can give on the movie and that would be helpful. And I'm like logging onto Twitter every day since Friday and on Letterboxd to see the reviews of this movie. And there's just so much toxicity. Uh, Like obviously a lot of five stars, four stars, like people loving the representation, loving the coming of age story, but a lot of one stars for this movie, which just doesn't make any sense. And like these kind of toxic reviews juxtaposed with the nuanced critiques that we're going to talk about later on Variety or Vanity Fair is really unfortunate because it doesn't really allow us to have any serious discourse over the movie. Like I just want to talk about how I like this movie and why, but I also want to talk about why I didn't think the movie hit some heights I was hoping for. And because of, I guess the culture right now, but especially the response to this movie, it's like disallowing that conversation, which sucks. And I feel like the conversation should be okay if it was like healthily being had, but it's not. So that's too bad. And I don't really think there's much else I can say. I just wanted to note that that's not non-spoiler, but ultimately I think we both argue that the movie is good but the message is maybe not totally fleshed out in the most appropriate way. Maybe appropriate isn't the right word, but in the most educational way. Yeah. And I think also to add with non-spoilers, like as a movie about puberty, this works and is more representative of a girl's like puberty experience than we've ever had in a cartoon or animated film or Pixar for children in general, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So for like little girls to see themselves on screen and especially Chinese Canadian or American girls just to see themselves on screen and Mm -hmm. and that experience is amazing. But the movie, as far as it being about identity, it maybe more than about puberty is where the message gets complicated. Yeah. I think we still can't touch on this in non-spoilers. So stay with us here, non-spoiler crowd, and then you got to go and then spoiler people get ready. But I think the message on face value is to accept yourself. But if you dig deeper into that message and analyze the thesis of the film, I think we think it conflates accepting identity with commodifying identity, which will make more sense when we get to spoilers. But without spoiling anything specific, Turning Red does get into this kind of like economics of identity that we talk a lot about in a social media world today in 2022. But it's doing it really interestingly in a pre-social media world, which is fascinating because the movie is like uninterested in that nuance of that conversation because it like states that selling your identity is almost equivalent to accepting yourself, which is kind of an argument that's being had a lot right now in, I guess, culture. And this movie gets to do that in a really, I think, a cool way. It's a very smart idea to be able to do that because it's set in 2002. Therefore, it doesn't have like those same stakes as it would in 2022. And I don't think a lot of older millennial reviewers or Gen X or older generation reviewers are seeing the problematic identity message as it correlates to Gen Z kids in this movie because they see the movie in 20, 2002. So a lot of like older reviewers are relating to this film and they see it as a coming of age story, but they don't see a lot of the identity stuff. But as public high school teachers like me and Kels, it's clear Pixar is capitalizing on this identity positive moment we're in with social media and fair enough. But without any context and any lesson involved on that idea, the movie kind of feels at the end a little bit unresolved about that topic. Aside from the, like what Kelsey's talking about, the puberty and the kind of journey of this like young girl, like that's all there. But I think with that, this, this idea of identity, it's still unresolved. Yeah. And so we'll get into examples in just a second, but it feels like the message of this movie was less focused as far as identity about exploring genuine conversations about identity identity and instead was kind of focused or came off as focused on embracing a business model of identity and that will become clear and yeah, spoilers well, literally that yeah. one there's a literal example for that okay so trey let's do extra credit at the beginning for okay. this one yeah does this movie deserve extra credit and should you watch it does this movie deserve extra credit no but that sounds harsh but it's because it's rated incredibly high like I think it's in the top 10 Pixar movies ever right now. The critic versus audience score on Rotten Tomatoes is like 95 critics, which makes sense. And then also in like the low 70s for audience because there's so many like triggered parents right now or just triggered fans. I don't know what's going on there. 
from toxicity to like borderline tone deaf to racist comments on there. So go check that out. It's wild. It's really sad. But should you watch this movie as a Pixar enthusiast? Yes. Yes. Should people watch this movie to enjoy a relatable coming of age experience? Yeah. Should people watch it as an inspiration on how to resolve struggling with their identity? Watch it, but you may be left with an average answer or kind of like a baseline answer. And everyone should watch every Pixar movie and especially this film, but dialogue after this one feels important. Like I think people should be talking after this movie. There should be conversations about this film. Yeah, definitely. And we watched the movie twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, we watched the short documentary. Well, I guess maybe not short. Let's, I think it's like it 45 like, minutes. Yeah, it's a 45 yeah. minute documentary. Um, but the documentary on making the movie too, which you should check out after you watch the movie mm-hmm. because Domi Shi and the team of women who made this movie are really special. I hope and they get so many movies. They're so cool. Yeah. yeah. And in the documentary, Domi explained that it's still unclear how to conclude childhood trauma as a young girl, Mm -hmm. which makes total sense. Right. But it does feel like slightly unsettling if the movie is made for 13 year olds. And so like, it's fine to introduce complex questions and leave them out there. Mm -hmm. Cause I want to make sure we're like, we're not trying to be too harsh or read too much into the movie, but the movie is marketed to children. Uh, And so if it's centered around identity and not just puberty, then I feel like it has a responsibility to make that a message about identity that's healthy, clear throughout it. Um, So yeah. Okay. Let's go ahead and get into spoilers. Right. I was about to say, this is a great transition for spoilers. Okay. So let's talk about the spoilers in the first half of the movies, the strength. So the first 30 to 40 minutes of this movie were really funny Mm -hmm. and we talked a little (laughs) bit about it, but let's talk about specifically what we loved because there is a lot to love here. Uh, May's friends, <laughs> May and her friends are really weird, and I want more of their story. The gang of weirdos. Yeah, they are awesome. The introduction of walking to the school was so sick. That little Twilight book. Was so <laughs> what was it? Funny. Nightfall. Nightfall. <laughs> yeah, on the back it was like I don't know. There were some funny little like nods there to Twilight, and Miriam was the cool one. I think she was a little bit one tone. I think, but it was purposeful with her. She was like this white character who's parents let her go to the concert later in the movie but she has to pay for it so she was interesting she was funny and then you had Priya who was uh (laughs) this kind of deadpan character that was kind of hilarious I have seen though not as this isn't really a weakness to her character but I'm starting to see this almost like as a caricature of like a lot of different brown and black characters of people of color and I'm not really sure why that's happening so much but like even with the Zendaya trope in Spider-Man like we're getting a lot of characters of color who don't really show their personality but have like this deadpan trope but she was still funny in this and that was interesting and then they touched on the possibility that she was even queer but weren't super direct about it but it was dope they touched on that and Abby definitely deserves a spinoff this whole team deserves a (laughs) spinoff all the girls but Abby was hilarious I think she was the most like well-liked character or just the kind of the funniest it felt like a character from I don't I don't know like a Nickelodeon character she was so cool and the fact that this whole group right away, you're kind of like in their group with them. It was just such good directing. Uh, I mean, Domi, she did such a great job of making us feel like we're right there with her and that friend group. And the turning red universe just seems really dope. Like I want to stay in the world, but I don't want like necessarily like massive creature fights. But I think like maybe if we could just stay in that world and maybe get a TV TV show, that'd be kind of cool. Kelsey, oh my God. Yeah. yeah. I wish I could stay in that world for longer. Like I, I wish we saw even more of just those cringy middle school moments, yeah. oh, like God. the scene where the house is bumping cha-cha slide I and it zooms into like, the oh. house and all the kids are just sitting there. So awkwardly is so funny. And the dad like says, go home everyone at the end when he kicks yeah. everyone out. But I was just laughing cause it's 2002. Like there aren't Ubers. Where are these kids going to go? Yeah. <laughs> like, I was wondering the same thing. They have like flip phones. Like I got to walk an hour and a half home now. Yeah. And like get no service. But yeah. So I love the best friends intro to in the world building it felt really grounded and groundbreaking just to see young girls in middle school like the twilight like you said and just them walking around after school and just talking to each other and in class like they were doing so well in class and they were friends in class like her friends sticking up for her when another girl was like what's wrong with you that was really cool too yeah that was awesome and the best scene to me was i think or i guess kind of compilation of scenes was 
the mom finding the drawing of Devin oh, and charging down to the Daisy Mart to confront uh. Devin and the slow-mo of Ming, her mom, throwing down the drawings to reveal <laughs> that she drew Devin as a mermaid. It was so it wasn't so the other funny. It wasn't the other kids' responses. It was Devin that got me because he was like, What? <laughs> Yeah, what? <laughs> he was like, what's going on? Yeah, and I also love the introduction of themes in the first part of the movie uh, that I thought they would explore more. Like, shame around getting your period. Yeah. And being, like what May says, is hairy and stinky. And, like, the deodorant scene where she's, like, putting it all over her body and just being so self-conscious of her body's normal process that you think is so abnormal when you're that age. She like puts it on her face. Yeah, because I know I love that. <laughs> um, because people don't talk about the changes openly with young people and especially young girls. But like the idea that she would be mortified that her mom brought pads to school, like that was amazing. Um, mm-hmm. Because women in general still feel the need to hide tampons and pads and products with periods or still feel shame around that. So yeah. I loved seeing that and I... Also loved uh, seeing the uncomfortable conversations that Ming had when she was like, I thought I had more time. Like I thought I I thought I'd see the signs. Like I just thought that was a really relatable kind of, I guess, tension and struggle and kind of relatable thing as we are becoming adults and we don't have kids yet, but where I can see the mom's point of view, but also we really felt empathetic for the daughter to be like, wait, like, I feel like parents probably should maybe. Yeah, you've been hiding this from me? Yeah. Yeah, like think about, well, how can we have these open conversations that are uncomfortable with our kids? Yeah, and I guess we should note that like she transforms. (laughs) We can really say that her transformation happens. And like that's a lot of the kind of like the metaphor there for puberty and like growing up. Uh, The only thing is... uh, I, I was going to say, I, I really thought the dad was funny. Like he's a part of my strengths, but the dad is kind of a trope that I'm continuing to see like nonstop. Like if everything is becoming more progressive in terms of character representation, dads are constantly just <laughs> terrible. <laughs> like <laughs> the dad walking away when he finds out his daughter has her basically her period. Oh yeah. I was like, come on. Yeah. And I'm like, oh man, this is a funny character, but still a trope. But I will say the cooking scene, one of the most beautiful animation scenes I've ever seen in a movie and also the scene, uh, well, also the cooking scene, like he's so methodical about it, which I just relate to. And also the scene of him singing <laughs> in the post credits, which honestly, if you've listened and saw this, or you're listening and saw this movie, you maybe didn't stay until after the credits. Go watch that post credits because the dad is singing for, if it's a four town. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's so <laughs> funny. And so like, I feel like it would just be cool if we got a little bit like of a more, I mean, he did have one conversation with may but i wish i would have got a little bit more from the dad um but again a lot of so much potential is in this world and it's and and we're just being introduced to i feel like all these different details of chinatown and toronto that i wish we could have just stayed in for a little bit longer and i wish we could have got more uh, at the home and wish we could have got more at the school and i think the transformation into the panda took us a little bit out of that but every time we were in those settings when may was uh, her human self, I really found myself like just loving the movie. Um, so those are some of my favorite parts. Yeah. I felt like, and I'm going to get, um, just like hated maybe in the comments. Okay. But I felt like it was a 2.0 inside out when we were with her in person. Oh no, you're right. No, I think, I think you're right. The first 30, 40 minutes right before she turns and transforms. I think that that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So come for me in the comments. Okay. (laughs) So let's go ahead. Uh, before we go into kind of critical reviews and what didn't work for us in this movie, let's talk about Domi's explanation and some positive reviews of this movie. Cool. Okay. So what themes did Domi, she want families to resonate with after watching this film? And this was from a interview that she did. Yeah. And we also did watch the documentary where she talked a lot about her vision for the movie and themes that she wanted to portray in the movie, which are similar to this quote. Mm -hmm. So after they watched the movie, I would love people to feel this permission to embrace their inner pandas and embrace that wild inner beast inside of them to just embrace the messiness of, of life. To not be afraid to be loud, weird, take up space, and be hairy, and horny, 
I probably shouldn't say that. And she laughs, but yeah, to just have permission to embrace your inner wild side as May did. And that quote is awesome because somebody felt like they could make their true story, this true story in this Pixar movie of this $200 million budget movie and really make people feel seen. And people did feel seen. But I will say that quote also simultaneously illustrates a little bit of our confusion of the plot and maybe the messages because it feels a little bit messy and skittish at times, like kind of jumping from things there, like embracing that wild inner beast, embracing the messiness of life. To not yeah, be, it's not always clear. Yeah, the weird, the take up space, the being hairy, the puberty, the, the, the kind of like the sexual parts of like growing up, like all those things together like feel like a lot of different messages at once. Or maybe it's not that the message isn't clear. It's just that the metaphors aren't necessarily clear. Yeah. And yes, basically. And it feels like the movie's a little bit almost impatient to make the point it's trying to make. And it feels like you're usually in safe hands with Pixar movies, but this one feels like we're going through Domi's experience. And just like what she said in the documentary, if you watch it at the end, we're kind of left unsatisfied with how to resolve the trauma of growing up and all these questions about identity because Domi kind of says that she doesn't really have the answers and that's totally fine. Like who has the answers? Am I right? But like sometimes Pixar movies don't really make you feel um, like you're in not resolved hands, if that makes sense. And sometimes they feel like they're in hands that are very, very experienced and know what they're talking about. Not that she doesn't, but you can feel that, uh, that kind of like, unclear message at the end I think yeah I think the the idea of making people feel seen and young girls feel seen is so important and I don't think we're arguing that you have to put a bow and we should put a bow on every story yeah but we'll go into more I think about uh the unresolved messages at the end that maybe didn't work for us okay well before we do that let's start with a positive review from NPR's Justin Chang on Turning Red quote May's transformation is clearly a metaphor for the onset of puberty when your body portrays you and becomes unrecognizable overnight, but it's a metaphor for something else too. As it turns out, the red panda effect is the result of some very ancient Chinese magic that's been passed down to May through the woman and her family parentheses kind of matriarchal responsibilities is what they're kind of looking at there. May's mom instructs her to suppress her feelings and the panda along with it, but then something funny happens. Her friends find out about the panda, and rather than being weirded out by it, they think it's the cutest, coolest thing ever. Soon, May is newly popular and having the time of her life, and she starts to wonder, what if the panda, far from being shameful, aberration, 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 is actually the truest expression of her happy, goofy, emotional self? And again, I think this is where, great review by Justin Chang, but I think that's where the message misses us, the second act. Because we love the first act, the mm-hmm. coming of age puberty story and the metaphor through the panda. But the second act and how the third act concludes, the idea that the panda is the truest expression of May's happy, goofy, and emotional self was not really a through line in the story. So the ending message was caught up in some complicated conversations that ultimately didn't feel helpful as a message, maybe, to me at least and Kels. And the director says she wanted to touch on, like Domi, she said she wanted to touch on maybe finding people's primitive selves as their real selves, which sort of feels like, and I know this seems harsh, but it sort of feels like pop psychology, sociology going on with that identity question. So I wasn't really feeling that too much. So I did agree with Justin on that review from the, again, from that kind of growing up perspective, but not as much that identity part that they touch on too. Yeah. And that was a quote from her about saying that your primitive self is your real self. Right. Yeah. I, and we're not again, like arguing, we shouldn't have messages where kids don't feel freed from shame around their changing bodies and emotions with puberty. But the movie does get complicated because the messages that are told to us are different from what's shown to us in that second part of the movie, Mm -hmm. like what's shown to us and the ultimate message. I think that kids are, are left with, um, after my two viewings is that identity is fixed and natural, kind of like the primitive quote and therefore not to really be explored and questioned. And I think like the pressure to hide the panda metaphorically was a healthy message, right? To like embrace the weird and messy sides of yourself. Right. Like it's great, especially in puberty when you feel a lot of shame around expressing yourself. Mm-hmm. And that was really well done in the first half, like you said, but where the movie, I think like 
I don't know. There was so much potential in those themes of the way you're supposed to feel versus the, who you want to be like the mom telling the pan telling her that the panda is dangerous versus the friends reassuring her. She's not a freak basically. Right. right? right. But the second act and the raising money for four town, this the is the concert. This is the big part. by selling her identity and the other plot points along the way that don't actually like support that message of embracing yourself fully. Um, right. That's we'll, the big yeah, part. We'll get more into it, but the theme of accepting yourself, right. Sh- I don't think should be confused with the theme of understanding yourself. Right. And the movie's effort for like self-acceptance becomes like, per- like really compu- complicated when messages of that, like, hasty acceptance and like literally selling yourself or capitalizing on your identity is not accompanied with an effort to push kids to ask themselves about the way that culture basically becomes a part of the way we act and what we value. And in 2022, like, I don't think it's too much to ask a movie to go beyond declaring like, this is who I am as a character, like deal with it. Like there, that's, I think what you maybe were touching on in the first part of this being simultaneously healthy in many ways, but also maybe not helpful as Mm -hmm. far as what the clear message is. Right. Yeah. I think that was really well said. And I think that's a good transition into our spoiler weaknesses here. I'm going to start off by giving a quote by Maya Phillips from the New York times who addresses uh, may selling the Panda sort of, she says, quote, Though the plot's red panda magic is rooted in its character's cultural traditions, these details aren't enough to absolve the film of its kid-friendly version of exoticism. After all, its characters profit off of May's cute and foreign transformation. End quote. Um, I thought that was a really good, I'll get into that in a little bit, but I thought that was a really succinct way of explaining what maybe the kind of uncomfortability about that scene that you just brought up about her kind of selling her identity for mm-hmm. the 4chan tickets or, or 4chan, <laughs> the 4town. <laughs> Four oh town. God, hopefully not 4chan. Yeah, 4town tickets. Um, but I thought that was a good example and a good kind of just clear, concise message from Maya there from the New York Times. And I have another quick one too from Variety's Peter DeBruge. Quote, this movie seemingly benign Embrace your inner weirdo lesson places turning red squarely within a patronizing new cartoon trend in which grown-ups are depicted as ignorant and desperately in need of a lesson only their children can provide. In the past year alone, Luca and Kanto and the Mitchells vs. the Machines all insisted that children know better than their parents. Now Pixar's panda fantasy delivers another pandering message, insisting that still immature May is fine as she and her mom are the only ones who need to change, or her mom is the only one who needs to change. That's not wrong, necessarily, though such movies peddle empowerment at the expense of humility. That review is a little bit harsh, and we will talk about the idea of May selling her panda more as it translates to like 2022, like Kelsey was saying. But for the patronizing point that Peter DeBruge was talking about, the movie does conclude with all the women in May's family giving up their panda without acknowledging suppression of their emotions. So I understand the point because I thought that was a little bit confusing. Do you remember that scene, Kels? Yeah, like I was confused how it wasn't acknowledged or I thought maybe in the end we would see the aunts and the grandmother and the mom kind of say, okay, if I'm suppressing you know, my emotions, if that's the metaphor of the panda, right? like I will try to also maybe break that generational trauma or I I just thought I'd see more of a clear point there. Like we would still have frustrations with the selling identity part. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But if all the, if all the aunties and the grandmother and the mom came out with also their half panda selves, like how May does at the end, I would have understood the message a lot more. Which also I forgot to say in the spoiler pot, like, uh, strengths. I loved, uh, May's family. Oh yes. Hilarious. I wish we got more scenes with her family. Yeah. I like the, I mean, I was trying to listen to as many like from friends, but also critics more like specifically, I was trying to listen to like how they felt seen. And apparently a lot of Asian critics felt seen in that specific scene about other, the family members coming entrance. Yeah. And like stepping into your world and your life and trying to like tell you how to live your life. Apparently a lot of people felt seen in that in those scenes. So that was really, really cool. Um, Okay. So I'm going to move on to our last quote here from the ringers, Daniel Chin on the critiques of turning red. 
I'm going to read this because I want us to be careful when we're uh, critiquing this movie. So I want people to be aware that we're aware of the kind of toxicity of the reviews on this movie. And Daniel Chin does a great job of explaining this. And I'll explain kind of like my own response to his quote here. On Tuesday, Cinema Blend managing director Sean O'Connell wrote a controversial review of Turning Red, which contains sexist and racist undertones, sending many on Twitter into a frenzy. Quote, without question, Turning Red is the horniest movie in Pixar history, which parents no doubt will find surprising, end quote from Daniel. And then Daniel goes on to say, O'Connell wrote in the since-deleted tweet, I recognize the humor in the film, but connected with none of it. By rooting Turning Red very specifically in the Asian community of Toronto, the film legitimately feels like it was made for Domi Shi's friends and immediate family members. O'Connell went even further in a tweet that accompanied the review, saying the film lacks universal appeal and has a very narrow target audience, while also deeming it exhausting. Now, Daniel Chin says, although this is a frustrating take considering the vast majority of Pixar's films have been written and directed by white men and centered on male protagonists, the unfortunate truth is O'Connell probably won't be the only one with this ignorant point of view. Rather than tearing down Turning Red, we should be celebrating it for its ability to spotlight a specific Asian culture and community whose perspectives are historically overlooked in mainstream Western media, while also maintaining a broad universal appeal to, say, anyone who's experienced puberty. Without spoiling the specifics of it, Turning Red also features an incredible, action-packed finish that beats the endings of the vast majority of superhero movies at their own game, end quote. So Chin at The Ringer, again, just want to shout him out because that was such a great review and also just a great criticism of people and critics like O'Connell. So Chin just did a great job there. And while the O'Connell review uh, is shared by some really irrational and even tone deaf, and like I said earlier, bordering on bigotry and racism, um, I, I think there are a lot of reviewers like that right now that are taking that stand, which is really unfortunate and toxic. I do think there is room for a nuanced analysis of Turning Red that Daniel Chin maybe is even like allowing here in this review. That is not criticism against what he's saying. I think he is right to point out that we should be celebrating Turning Red for spotlighting Asian culture and Western media. That cannot be said enough. Like representation here is a huge deal and we should hold Disney and Pixar, these billion dollar companies to that standard. But the creators, including Domi Shi, said they were focusing on telling a coming-of-age story that happens to be starring a 13-year-old Chinese girl, but not a Chinese story. And I think that's really important to note. I feel like it's being missed here that they that they legit said that in their documentary. And for audience to understand the intentions of this story, like this Embracing the Panda documentary, you guys should probably go watch that if you haven't, everyone listening, because Domi, she's very clear that she wanted to make this a coming-of-age story that happens to be this family. And I think that's being, again, missed. This movie wasn't focused on talking about assimilating in Western culture, like how we were thinking going into it. It instead bordered on maybe some problematic ethics of the West's role in objectifying immigrants from Eastern countries. Like one of the critical reviews that I just read earlier from New York Times talks about exoticism and forcing cultural assimilation on the characters in this movie. And so what the reviewers are saying is that this movie is sort of profiting off of the West's romanticizing non-white cultures and often like portraying these non-white cultures as primitive and hypersexual. And this movie resembles some of that toxic exoticism by representing non-white cultures as a source of pleasure, like the panda. And instead of using the panda as a source of education and conversation about Western propaganda, May's character is kind of used as an example to just accept like this Western superiority and to excel what makes you different. And I think those kind of get conflated. And so that leads me to this, the politics of this movie. Like the politics are a little bit confusing because it's not pandering to a conservative or traditional audience. In fact, the audience are laughably quite angry at the movie. Like conservative traditional audiences need to chill out. And they're criticizing this movie for no acceptable reasons. Like I've heard parents and people and reviewers say online and read what they've said. And a lot of it's like, how could you show my kid this on Disney plus? It's like, what do you, okay, just talk to your, children but the movie does feel like it's pandering to middle and upper socioeconomic classes in western audiences because it's not really addressing the way the west treats immigrants and new immigrant families like we are shown asian and chinese norms from family dynamics to household items in this movie and people feel seen and that's important but conversations about 
the Asian experience or the immigrant experience, which me and Kelsey don't know anything about, but we're not seeing it in this movie, beyond generational trauma feels absent and makes the movie feel more surface level to us, I think. Yeah, like I thought that in the beginning of the movie, I saw all these themes that they were going to possibly go into. Exactly. Like the family running the temple in Toronto and she dresses up as a red panda at the beginning in that like cardboard suit and she's throwing glitter at the people who are coming to visit the temple. Yeah. Like a tourist. Yeah. And we had like people with uh, like cowboy hats and just like white tourists. And it didn't seem like with the glitter, like throwing glitter on the people who are visiting, it didn't seem Mm -hmm. like the people were coming necessarily for a educational experience or to understand a different culture it felt more so like they were like "Ooh, ah like that that was the vibe of that scene yes so i thought they were gonna possibly go into that in the movie but did not yeah i think this is kind of goes back to what i said earlier while on face value the 2002 nostalgia part seems really cool it's also kind of a sneaky way to like say a lot of things without being held accountable for a lot of things like she like domi she gets to kind of show her reality which which makes a lot of sense of representation of living in Chinatown in Toronto but also not talking about the economic segregation and why that's problematic and why western countries force immigrants into these smaller communities and and basically objectify their culture and kind of romanticize them like how I was talking about with the exoticism so it is just really interesting that if you kind of dive a little bit deeper into the year the year that they did for 2002 feels more like like I said just you kind of get away with a little bit saying not saying a lot. Yeah. Well, the thing is that like, I wouldn't be holding this movie to the standard uh, as far as like going into these really complicated topics, right. except that the movie does go into the idea of selling and capitalizing on identity. So yeah. that's where it gets really complicated because otherwise I wouldn't be like, uh, you know, why aren't we? Why is Ratatouille not talking themes? about yeah, so, <laughs> why he's living in the slums? But, yeah. yeah. So like, I, I think that it's so... It's You're right. Like, I mean, we should say that this movie, this Pixar movie is the highest ceiling of any Pixar movie I've ever seen. Yeah, it's introducing a lot of questions, which is a good thing. Uh, and I feel like if uh, Pixar did green light, and maybe that was something on the storyboard of really showing maybe how the friends were like talking to May about her her experience and about her family even more that would have shed a little bit more light into May's experience and had a lot of kids probably empathize and understand May's culture more than I think they did in this movie. Absolutely. Good point. Okay. Let's move on to one or two more things for, well, for me at least for, uh, what was a weakness in this movie for me. I think the idea of antagonist is kind of confusing too. Like the antagonists come off at one point as the older woman in the movie. So the aunties and the grandmother and the mother Um, to a young child watching, I could imagine that they still think those are the antagonists, especially because they didn't, they didn't kind of keep their pandas. And you think the movie is being educational about those stereotypes with the family, but it almost like fulfills those stereotypes, I think for like little kids. And that line is unclear. And the real antagonist of the movie for adults, I think, when when kind of critiquing the movie or just reviewing it, is the trauma of generational conflict and societal expectations and how those combined can torture the psyche of anybody, but especially this young girl. And that's still not done and I think in the most explored, nuanced way it could be and is overly complicated with using the panda as a symbol for a variety of real life problems. Yeah, like the panda represents a lot, which I'll, I'll go into in my. Yeah, she calls it magic. So. She says in the documentary it's magical, I and mean, we keep calling it documentary, but I guess it's just behind the scenes. But whatever, it's it's great. Watch it. But she says that it's magical puberty. So I'm assuming it. I mean, she's aware. Obviously, she made them. <laughs> she obviously has to be aware that that it's probably magical. A lot of things. It's like it's got ten different layers to it. Um, yeah, which I'll go into in a second. So yeah, okay, we'll move on to my my last point here about weaknesses. So the adulthood theme was a little bit confusing to me too. May kept stating that she was an adult without being checked or educated on that. And who hasn't done that at 13? <laughs> like <laughs> right. I, I'm aware, like at 13 years old, I was like, maybe my parents aren't as smart as I thought they were. Like maybe my teacher isn't that smart. And we're public <laughs> high school teachers. Like we see those kids every day. Uh, but they never like address that again. Like she talks about herself as an adult and she says, just like any adult, I have responsibilities. 
And in the end, it feels like she's teaching her mom something, which is cool, but they don't actually do a full circle message there where they both teach each other something. So the movie is like arguing that she's becoming an adult while also stating she's already an adult and might even be more emotionally intelligent than her parents. And that message, like I said, resonates with everybody a little bit. We've all been there. And that's how a lot of kind of critics have been talking about it. Like we've all been there. It's a cute story. But it almost felt like Disney and Pixar were pandering to a little bit to a young generation who is constantly told by big media that they know best and that adults are flawed, which again has truth to it. But the key differences between children or teens at large and adults is missing from this movie. They do not they do not talk about the differences between children and adults, and that's confusing. The difference in the stakes is responsibilities, right? Like we we know that adults have stakes and they're responsible for more people usually than just themselves where children kind of have a second shot usually, or at least hopefully privileged children do. And, and this movie does not really address that. And may isn't really checked on that at the end of the movie. So I thought there was going to be a full circle lesson where both the mother and the daughter learn from one another, but it really just feels like the mother learned and the family learned and the aunties learned and the grandmother learned, but also sort of because they didn't take the pandas with them. Yeah. And so I was like, wait, what? Yeah. It's really confusing, especially I think because often what is missing from these messages to give it nuance is that the younger children maybe aren't more emotionally intelligent than their parents. It's just that they have the internet now and they have more yeah. tools to like deal with emotions and more accepting uh, peers and education and, yeah. and right. So I think the internet makes people more cultured and weirdly less cultured too at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So, but I think what's like missing from those conversations is that, but also it, it, this was a critique for me too. And I'm glad you said it cause I, I didn't have it in my notes here, but because the antagonists are also women in the movie, it might be a little bit complicated for young viewers to basically think like, okay, my mom is suppressing me and not really exploring the generational, right? Like, and historical pressures that women face and why Ming, May's mom had to keep her panda in. Like the actual real pressures and stakes of that were not explored. And so I think that could be really confusing to a young audience. For sure. And I think that the movie thinks it did that by the dad talking to May. And really what the dad did, and I'm not, I know this sounds like, honestly, I'll just say it. This is the scene I probably like the least in the movie is when the dad basically tells May this like very trope-like thing, like basically playing a caricature of every dad ever in Western media, which is weird, is that your mom means well. Like yeah, how, how like many he ta- gets to have the message. <laughs> but also like, it's just not satisfying. Like this movie's talking about very complex things. And for the dad to just come in and be like, let me talk to you on the ground next to your bedside real quick and be like, your mom means well. I was like, what is this? Why is this so basic in this message? So that was unfortunate. That was my last one. Like that was probably the last thing I wanted to note because we've talked about identity and now we've talked about the antagonist and kind of this messaging with May being an adult, but is she also just learning to be an adult and what that means? But Kelsey, do you have any other ones you wanted to add? Yeah. So I think there's just one more thing about identity that I wanted to add before we close. Cool. So I didn't think there was a clear message about the healthy way to embrace identity. So like the idea of acceptance versus the goal of understanding yourself were a little bit conflated and not made super clear to me. So let me kind of explain my take. Okay. So the movie is telling us that May keeping the panda in is unhealthy. Right. Like literally at the end, we see the woman and the family separating themselves from the panda. So we're supposed to understand, I think, that keeping the panda in is unhealthy because it's suppressing your emotions. Right. But the movie doesn't clearly differentiate suppressing emotions and keeping the panda in versus learning how to deal with emotions in a healthy way. Like they do a little bit, but May has both healthy and unhealthy ways of putting the panda away. Like unhealthy ways are yelling at herself, negative self-talk, right? Like really intense things, actually like slapping herself or Mm -hmm. body slamming into the ground or like calling herself an adult, right? Like interpreting that the correct way to deal with these emotions 
are to act like everything is okay. Like she walks into school and she's like, hello friends. And they're like, May, what are you doing? (laughs) Indifferent. Yeah. Right. But she also has healthy ways to deal with emotions. Like her parents show her that picture of her losing the spelling bee. And I think we're supposed to understand that she would normally feel shame around that experience and maybe have negative self-talk. But instead she pictures what her friends would say to her, right? Like, and they say, you know, you tried your best and like, we love you. And that's such a great model for kids when they're turning to negative ways to cope with emotions, right? which I think is all good, right? Like showing those are pretty clear, Mm -hmm. but the problem is it's not clear what the panda represents outside of puberty. So then like, it's ultimately seen as a bad thing to put the panda away. Right. And I think it kind of runs the risk of confusing the audience that there are healthy ways to deal with emotions that are not necessarily suppressing emotions. Right. Like the dad later says, you know, we shouldn't push our, the bad things away. We should sit with them. But I think that it wasn't totally clear to me. So I don't know if it would be clear to kids and I'm, I'm willing to, to hear people out on this, but it wasn't clear enough to me mm-hmm. that beyond just sitting with your emotions, we should actually be kind of pushing kids to think about the ability to deal with the, the emotions that you're having. Yeah. And, and also like think about the way to cope with these emotions and not have negative self-talk like the healthy versions that we were shown. Yeah. Like that should be seen as a superpower instead of this ambiguous turning into a panda Yeah, or half panda. Yeah. So like, I guess just the idea that it wasn't fully resolved at the end just didn't feel like in line with maybe the current conversations that we're having about exploring the lack of insight that we've had into our mental lives, especially like generationally. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I mean, I just think kids and people are like really hungry for tools to deal with emotions as well as sit with them. And so I just wish I got a little bit more clarity on the idea that may should have been reflecting on when she was acting out of fear or trying to be cool versus the, healthy decisions that she was making, uh, about like how she was dealing with those emotions and what decisions she was making to act on how she should feel that accurately reflects herself. Right. I think Pixar is kind of guilty of this from a production standpoint, like they're funding projects like soul or inside out and now turning red that are kind of giving you really interesting, giving kids really interesting questions about free will and determinism and circumstance and perspective and life and decision-making. And then kind of at the end, cheap out and go, well, I don't know. There's like things in your head that pull levers or your souls in a different universe that are making decisions for you. Or in this movie, you might be a panda. And it's like, I don't know. (laughs) At one point we're going to get like more of an academic Pixar movie that is actually going to be asking questions at the conclusion instead of being instead of stating something that's ambiguous and i don't know i mean obviously it's more helpful than i think movies in the past with Pixar, oh yeah especially in the mid-2000s like we're not getting i love the incredibles but we're not getting avengers like movies like that that aren't really asking a lot of questions outside of family dynamics like this these movies are asking a lot of questions and they're influential but just like me and kelsey were saying like before the heights right the ceiling these movies have higher ceilings than all the other movies. So we're kind of grading them relative, you know, if that makes sense, the scales are different. And so this movie, like, because it kind of ends like in this unresolved way about identity at the end, I don't know, just, yeah. Like we've said it before, it yeah. feels a tad irresponsible well, for that reason. I just thought that maybe we were going to lean more towards the pressures of having to conform yeah. in this movie. Yeah. Like that's what I thought it was being set up for, like shaving your body hair or like the conversations may would have with her peers especially around privilege and identity yeah and like how her friend was the only you know uh, miriam was the only Mm -hmm. person who was able to go to the concert right and instead i feel like towards the end we were just getting this message of just be you and do what feels right and without exploring like how we learn what feels right if that makes sense like for this last point that i have i was just really concerned with the way little girls would interpret this last piece like there is already an existing pressure to value yourself how mainstream media has shown you you should value yourself especially for young girls so the idea that may's two opposing options are ming her mother's message to suppress her emotions or 
her friends telling her to embrace her identity is kind of like a simplification just because yeah. her friends values shouldn't just be seen as like natural or pure because they aren't just saying, Hey, may, Hey may accept yourself. They're also saying, Hey, like sell yourself. We're going to yeah. help you. And may and her friends being in middle school, right? Like they're operating on this kind of naive idea that it's cool to sell herself. And that is where value in her new identity lies, which translates to 2022 kids as yes, you should value yourself based on how many likes you get on Instagram. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that, that, and that, that felt is like so connection. clear to me just being with teenagers every day. Yeah, and, and I think the that's the stress so, and pressures they have. For sure. I think as high school teachers, we definitely see this on a day to day. So when we watch this movie, we had an instantly different reaction to a lot of critics, not because we didn't like it. We did like the movie, but loving the movie, we didn't we fall, fell short of that because of that reason. We were like, "Oh, our kids are dealing with this struggle and these kind of like image issues that they're having of themselves and not knowing how to portray themselves on social media and almost feeling like this like this weird kind of bullying going on because they don't know how to should they be performing on social media? Should they be like showing themselves on social media? Like how much should they be on social social media and should they be making how much value should they be placing on the likes that they get on social media Yeah, should I brand myself and like like make myself a brand like a business like should I be an entrepreneur of my own face like and the kids are wondering those things right now and this movie gets to tackle that again because it's in 2002 in a subtle way that feels I think I think there must be a group I'm assuming there are people who are having this conversation but the critiques right now are just so flooded with toxicity that you're not really seeing them yeah. And I, I, this is the last thing I'll just say about it because I was kind of like, oh, okay, maybe, you know, this will work into another theme in the movie when she's having the moment of like selling the panda in that room in school. Mm-hmm. But this is where it became a little bit like tricky to me is the scene at Tyler's party. Like I felt like it was pr- pretty problematic. Like there was a part where I was like, okay, I'm feeling a little uncomfy about like the power dynamics, especially with gender here. And maybe there's something here that will tell me why this is happening. Like, okay, May's having fun at the party. She's the life of the party. But ultimately Tyler like purchases the panda for the party right? and yells at her to like get down here. Like, and that was never resolved beyond a fight. Yeah, literally it was a fight. There wasn't a conversation or anything like that. Yeah. And so I just felt like that whole sequence showed the illusion of choice and like the narrow path that may had to gain worth and value from her peers. And I really don't think I'm reading that much into it. Like it's all right there. And the idea that may now has a choice and expression through capitalizing on her identity mm-hmm. is not new. It's like a recycled reinforcement of traditional ways that women are valued in culture and what they often have to do to be seen and heard. And so We didn't really see any conversations about her peers embracing her hairy, weird, smelly, awkward side that everyone's going through that I really wish we got a little bit more of. Yeah, like directly saying that. Yeah, like instead we got her peers accepting her through making fur baby t-shirts and wanting selfies with her. Yeah, like rubbing their faces on her fur. Yeah, so I just didn't, I didn't see the conversation. I think that was mainly the biggest thing. Like I wanted more conversation around the hairy, weird, smelly, awkward side that made kids feel seen yeah. in that way. No, that was really good. I think that kind of is a perfect uh, synopsis of how we felt about this movie afterwards. Uh, Kelsey, do you think there's going to be sequels? I'm feeling like there's going to be sequels. I feel like there, I mean, I just want so much more, like we've already said a couple times in the, the pod, world. I want so much more in the world. I want to be with May, where she's growing up. I want to be in her family, day-to-day life, her friends. Yes. Um, yes, I would, I would watch the second one for sure. And I would love to see more of a turning red world. I would love to see like a, like we skip ahead three years and we're in 11th or 12th grade. That'd be really interesting. Like going into college, they could do a lot of different things there. So yeah. That'd be, that'd be just, fun. And also there's just endless possibilities with the awkward moments that you could include and in making kids feel seen during this time where they feel so much shame, which I think the movie did, uh, since we're, we're kind of ending here, which I think the movie did make kids feel seen in that way. So that's great. For sure. Do you want to give a quick shout out to the TV show on Hulu that kind of reminded you of this? I mean, some of our listeners might like this show. Well, so this is a podcast for adults, you know, Um, (laughs) but so Pen15, if you haven't seen it, um, it's on Hulu. It is on Hulu. And I think they met in grad school, but they're best friends who made this TV show. And they met in grad school and decided to make 
a cringy comedy about their experience in middle school in seventh grade. And they play themselves in seventh grade. It is <laughs> absurd so premise, but amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it is great. So if um, you liked turning red and you wish you got more of the kind of cringy middle school, awkward moments um, and just want to cringe a little bit more and laugh a lot. I think it's the funniest show I've ever seen and I don't even think that's hyperbolic yeah check out pen 15 on Hulu <laughs> yeah it's nostalgia and also cringe it's very cringe <laughs> you'll enjoy it though it's awesome okay everybody this has been the extra credits of Pixar's newest film turning red thank you all for listening remember it's not who you are underneath but what you do that defines you so what you can do is rate review and find <laughs> other pods from us on most podcast platforms Please throw us some stars on Apple and Spotify. And if you can, please write a review for us on Apple. It goes a long way. That's how we'll get fined on the algorithm. Heck yeah. And follow us on Spotify. Finally, you can find us on Instagram at Extra Credits Pod and on Twitter at The Extra Credits or email us extracreditspod at gmail.com. We appreciate any and all feedback. This has been Trey. And this is Kelsey. Peace. Bye.